host of this show, Max Naist, lived in addiction for years and made lots of destructive choices, which resulted in losing friends, family, and his career. After being in jail for the fourth time, he knew he needed to make some big changes. Now, sober for 17 years, he shares the steps he took, which led to recovery and got his life back. Welcome to Fearless Happiness. 19.7 million American adults have battled a substance use disorder. 38% of adults have battled an illicit drug use disorder. But no matter what the struggle, no matter the challenge, you can overcome anything and become successful. Max and his guests share experience, strength, hope, and faith. If it's PTSD or military-related, trauma, physical, verbal, sexual addiction, alcoholism, you can accomplish your dreams. And with this show, we help others be fearless in their pursuit of happiness. This is Fearless Happiness, and this is Max Naist. Welcome to the Fearless Happiness Podcast. Today, I have an amazing guest. My friend Jared Roy Miller from St. George, Utah. Good old sunny St. George. Right. So everybody pay attention. I want you to listen up. So Jared, introduce yourself to the audience. Let them know who you are and what you do. And then we're going to get rocking and rolling. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Max. I appreciate you having me on here, dude. This is this is a cool opportunity for me. So uh, I'm a person in long-term recovery. What that means to me is I haven't had to abuse an opiate in over seven years. Uh, my name is Jared Miller. I'm also an advanced substance use disorder counselor. I work for Steps Recovery Centers, uh, which is one of the biggest, it's the biggest treatment center in, in uh, all of Utah. So yeah, man, that's kind of, uh, that's that's me today. That's awesome. Um, and there, everybody, just to let you know, like I met Jared September now, right? Time flies, know, bro. It's, yeah. <laughs> Uh, at a speaking engagement that we both got the uh, privilege of doing. And I got to hear Jared's story. And I was like, man, I got to get this guy on my podcast, right? So the premise of my podcast, Jared, is like I share with the world people that have gone through some crazy challenges. I like to call them challenges, but struggles, right? Whatever you want to call it and how they got through it, right? And come out the other side and be and become successful like yourself. And Jared's going to get into his story. But we got to know each other in that short little period of time. And, and we connected because we have a lot of similarities. So pay attention, everybody, because Jared has been through some, as they say, the ringer, and he's come out the other side, and, and uh, he's successful. And a lot, uh, him and I share a lot of similarities. So, so tell the audience, Jared, like, what are some of the challenges that you had to go through to get where you're at today? Man, uh, so first of all, I, I like to say honestly, I'm a nobody that that uh, through God's grace get, got a second chance. Um, I hope that. By me sharing my story, it can help other people. Like when I used to hear other people share their story and it helped me. Uh, some of the things that, that I had to go through is overcoming homelessness. I lost uh, my dad when I was in my early, early 20s. He passed away and that really, that shook me, man, because he was a cornerstone in my life, you know, and uh, I experienced the death of my brother through an accidental overdose for good reason, because I was addicted to opiates and basically powerless and my life was unmanageable. My wife asked me for a divorce. So those were all things that contributed to the depths of my addiction, right? That's some of the stuff I had to overcome. And look, I think we're all overcoming stuff even to this day, you know, the stigma around addiction and some of that stuff. So Right. Like, I don't know how, how specific you want me to get, Max. <laughs> here, that's what I forgot to tell you. So you go as deep as you want. You can like, it doesn't matter here. We let the, I let my guests tell the audience 
what they want them to know, right? You know, depends on what you want to talk about, how deep you want to go. Uh, but I want, like I said, I like to show the audience like how some of my guests, most of my guests have gone through some, and you know, and I know like her, addiction is not fun, right? It is for us right. in the beginning, right? It's all sunshine. Yeah, cool. And then it turns on us, right? So kind of let, let, like take the audience through that journey. Like you said, with, with losing your dad, that's where we're similar. I lost mine when I was younger. But in my, you know, early, um, what addiction did to you, like how it took everything, how addiction takes everything away from an individual that they love because, you know, we fell in love with the drugs and alcohol and nothing else mattered. So they, I want the audience to see this picture of what you went through and then how you've come out through the other side. Okay. Yeah. So to truly understand it, I, you said that it was like fun at first and, and I get that for some people. Um, so let me kind of dive a little bit more into it. So Growing up, I was, I lived out in the country, right? Horses, chickens, and I had a really good upbringing, really good childhood. Both parents were around. Um, I'm Christian, grew up in a Christian uh, church, religion, and um, was a student athlete, played football in high school. That's probably the first time I ever truly started to find an escape from like the problems in my life. My dad was a vet. He served with the 101st Airborne. He was a, uh, a paratrooper. He was, he was just a solid dude, man. He was a, an American hero for sure. And he got Agent Orange in Vietnam, which made him really sick. And then he, he actually uh, couldn't work when I hit like junior high. So we, we went from a two income household to a one income household and things got really tight. And so I remember um, growing up, not really understanding all that having to, to take little part-time jobs and the money would go to my family. And, and that was tough, but I, but football came along and that was an escape for me. You know, I, I would throw on the helmet, shoulder pads, go out and I would just, everything else would just fade away. I would, I was totally in the moment. Right. Right. And for that reason, I flourished. Like, like I, Look, I was an average kid, but because I had a lot of pain and a lot of uh, things that I had to work through, that was that was my therapy was working through that stuff. And so I totally got lost in it, ended up getting a scholarship to Snow College, which is a junior college here in Utah, uh, ended up graduating from Weber State in 2008. So that was my vehicle. Shortly after I graduated, I, I got a teaching and coaching position out in Arizona. I was a special education teacher, health teacher, uh, football coach, baseball coach, and I was married, really living my dream. I, you know, I had a, a baby boy, a little girl on the way. And then it was my first year as a head coach. I'd been an offensive coordinator the year before, but I get a phone call from my mom and she's like, Hey, your dad's super sick. And I'm like, what's new? He's been sick forever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so anyway, she's like, no, really like you, you know, uh, you need to come back home and, and kind of say your goodbyes. And so I went back home and took him and did all the stuff that he took me to do as a kid. Uh, we went to the bees baseball game, Ogden Raptors baseball game camping, just some of that, you know, that stuff that, that dads and sons do. And I was getting ready to fly back to Arizona because Monday, you know, two days started, I'd kind of let my assistant coaches do the conditioning thing while I was gone. And, but practice, practice started that, that week. He begged for me to, you know, just stay, please just stay. And um, honestly, I don't know if it's because he had been on hospice for so long or he'd been sick for so long. I truly didn't think that that was going to be the last time I saw him. And so I said, dad, I can't, you know, and, and anyways, my mom comes into the bedroom and she's like, oh, you know, my dad's emotional. I'm emotional. And she's like, come on, you know, we got to go. We're going to make the flight. And so I flew home that Tuesday or Wednesday morning. I get a phone call that my dad had passed. 
Max, I had like dabbled, right? Like I'd, I'd drank in high school, like at parties. I didn't wake up the next day and go, oh, I've got to do that again. Right. right. Like I had, <laughs> right. I had shattered my ankle in high school and was prescribed Oxycontin and Percocets and all this stuff. And I honestly, I didn't even t- like, I, I remember not even taking them as long as the doctor told me to take them for. So like I, but I do remember the first time I took an opiate. I remember getting this feeling like if I could feel like this forever, (laughs) that would be phenomenal. Like I felt like I was Superman, you know what I mean? Right. So I know that that component was there the the very first time I used like outside of the hospital, right? Right. And I can remember laying in bed one day and I have a, you know, I've had ankle surgery. I had a rod, a plate and seven screws in my ankle um, from a football injury. And I'm laying in bed and I'm like, oh man orange juice sounds really good. So I feel myself kind of get up, wander upstairs, open the fridge, and I go to drink the orange juice. And I think to myself, how did I get here? I have a shattered ankle. And boom, I woke up, kind of came to in my bed or like my phone. In other words, I was kind of nodding out, you know what I mean? And I was having like out of body experiences. And uh, again, that was like, to me, I'd never experienced anything like that. And I was like, this is crazy. This is phenomenal. This, I feel amazing. No pain. So there is where the seed was planted for the addiction. I kind of stopped using them at the time. I had love, my family, I had acceptance, my teammates, and I had purpose, right? I was, I was dubbed ever since my sophomore year as a college football player. So I had those three key components in my life that really helped pull me out of it. So I stopped taking the paid meds, started hitting the gym again, got back to hanging out with my friends and doing stuff with my family and healed from it and eventually was able to play. But anyways, so I know I'm jumping around. I apologize, but fast forward, mm-hmm. my dad passes away and all those prescriptions that I'd never fully used, had, I had them in a shoebox in my closet. I don't know, man. Just like, I know this stuff is expensive stuff. I don't know. Maybe I grew up in a family that, you know, my dad was always like, you use, you know, you don't throw stuff away. We had a pile of wood from all the scraps for building decks and stuff. He just wasn't mm-hmm. the guy that wasted stuff. So it's kind of in my nature. Right. So they're in a shoebox. <laughs> I don't want to say hoarder, but we definitely repurposed things and used it as much as possible. So that's kind of the way I was taught. So anyways, I, I start having this guilt, you know, like, man, I could have spent my dad's last, I could have spent my dad's last days on earth with him. And, uh, and as you can tell to this day, that that can still kind of bite me, you know? And, yeah. and so I was really struggling with that. And of course, football player, tough guy, you know, the facade that, that we put on, I couldn't go and, you know, talk to my wife at the time about it. I couldn't, you know, go see a, a counselor or a therapist, only crazy people do that. Right. So, <laughs> right. so I, so I, I remember thinking I was like exhausted after like a week, a weekend to find out my dad passed away. I literally can remember it was about a weekend. And I think I got to get some sleep like this. My mind is just racing and, and I'm having, and I'm feeling this sickness in my stomach and I can't sleep. I've got a sleeper. I'm gonna get fired from work. And so I remember taking, started taking the Oxycontin and the Percocets at night to fall asleep. And I genuinely wasn't really abusing them at the time. Like, well, of course they were no longer prescribed to me. So I was, but like I wasn't crushing them and snorting them or doing anything crazy, just, just popping them. And um, so then again, that feeling, that euphoria that, oh man, this is warm and fuzzy. And if I could feel like this forever, life would just be fantastic. And so, yeah, it slowly got out of control. You know how this thing works. You, you know, you take one Percocet 10 and the next night or, you know, a couple of days later, you got to take two and so on and so forth. And then of course I have this, 
these x-rays for my ankle that is just terrible. So when I run out of the stuff that was in my shoebox, I just go to my cornerback and shortstop. His dad was a physician. So I would just go to him and we'd BS about sports. And I'd say, Hey man, I'm really having pain. I wake up in the morning. My ankle's killing me. Here you go. Right. Take right. this. Right. Um, and I, I even brought in the old bottles of like post-surgery strength stuff. And he's like, oh, yeah, I can match that. That's no problem. You know, it was too easy at the time. It was too easy. You know, this is 2009, 2010 before it really blew up. And yeah, so my story is not unique. That's why I say I'm not I'm nothing special, man. I that that was kind of where the birth of start of my addiction was. And for about a year, I was able to kind of keep it together before the wheels started coming off. And then um we moved back to, we moved from Arizona, me and my wife at the time moved back from Arizona to Utah. Utah was on a hiring freeze. They weren't for teachers. They weren't hiring teachers and coaches. Um, so I had to get a job working like at the mall selling cell phones or something I wasn't passionate about, right? Like I'd gone to school to do what I wanted to do. And here right. I am discontent, unsatisfied. And then my brother struggled with alcoholism and uh, we went and picked him up from a hospital here and in, in, it was up in Salt Lake City area. For those of you that have seen the Olympics and know what Salt Lake, you know, Salt Lake City, Utah is. Right. And he was um, an alcoholic, hardcore alcoholic, but he also, he was poly addicted. He also would cross over into opiates. Um, sorry, am I just going off? No, no, you're good. Comments, anything? No, no, here. So this is, I just want the audience to understand, see the progression where Jared's talking about, right? And things that still affect him, right? I have the same stuff, like with his father, right? So here's what I want the audience to realize when they're listening to you is like, okay, you just started like, it wasn't on the intent to go, I'm going to be an addict. I'm going to take as much as I can, right? A lot of us addicts and alcoholics start by, hey, we have this pain that we're going through. And if we do a little bit of this, so I don't have to feel that, right? I'll be good, right? Not realizing if we have that addictive tendency or, you know, the addictive predisposition because it's in our family somewhere. You know, it's not like we tell ourselves, I'm going to take this so I can get addicted. And you know what I mean? But you're, you said it perfectly, right? You get emotional, right? And there's a lot of us, and you you can relate to this because you're a counselor and, and you're in recovery. That guilt and shame keeps us out there. Yep. It could be the precursor to what really sets us off into that addictive world, right? And then every time we come down, right? Tell me if I'm wrong, but we feel that guilt and shame of whatever event happened. And we're like, oh, no, we can't do that. So I got to take more. Right. And then that's where the addiction starts to take off because then you need more and more and more. No, and you're right on because, you know, I want the audience to see, right, that stigma you talked about, right? Because out there, you know, in the world, it was like, okay, the alcoholic is that bum that sits out in front of a liquor store on the curb with a brown paper bag, right? Or the the junkie who shoots heroin or whatever is the guy that's on skid row that's living in a tent, right? I mean, that's just the stigma, right? And and like you said, from all of us who, you know, this the, the personalities are different. The backgrounds are all different. But like Jared said, he came from a, a loving home, both parents, you know, unfortunately, until dad got sick, but there was no abuse, no trauma. That's like mine. I have a single mom, but I had a huge family, right? So there was a lot of love, cousins, uncles, nephews. So I can't say that, oh, you know, it was my childhood, you know, because I got beat by mom or dad. Or It's just, you know, when I, when I got sober, I did the research. My dad suffered from depression and alcoholism, right? He was... Mm -hmm. Uh, my biological grandfather was a prisoner of war, right? Got shot by the Japanese. So no, back in those days, it was like, okay, we'll take the bullet out. Here's morphine. Take it when you feel pain. Like they gave him that, you know? Yeah. 
and he was an alcoholic, right? Because I found out from my mother, like my grandfather would take off for, you know, hours and go to the local bar with his buddies and drink. And she would have to threaten him. I'm going to leave home if, you know, if you don't come home, because apparently my mom was the apple of his eye. And, but, you know, you're spot on because we, I want to let the audience know what addiction looks like, you know? So and, that's just, and, go ahead. I was just going to say, and two, like, there's a big denial piece for some of us as well. Like, so at the, at this point in time in my story, I still don't think that I'm an addict. I don't think I have a problem because right, there you number go. one, like I didn't go from taking a couple pills to like a week later, blowing through a prescription. That really wasn't it. Like, and I could justify in my mind, I could justify, look, I'm six foot, nothing played college football in a division one level. I had no business playing college football in a division one level again. For me, it wasn't, it wasn't raw talent. It was determination and it was my escape. That's what made me good. But physically I got the crap beat out of me, Max. Like I, <laughs> I can remember running down on a kickoff and diving sideways into a wedge breaker. And I mean, I beat my body up, you know, yeah. and had two, two shoulder surgeries on my left shoulder, had three, uh, yeah, three different ankle surgeries. Like, so at the time I'm telling myself the narration in my mind is this is justifiable. You have pain, you take payments. Right. Now, was, was that pain manageable with Tylenol and ibuprofen? Probably. And again, I can see this now, but at the time, if you would have told me, I would have been like, look, that, I don't have a problem. You telling me I have a problem is my problem. I don't have a problem, right? right. This is legit. That was a narration in my mind. Oh, yeah. So I was I, in denial I, for a long time. And I, I totally get that, bro. I was a alcohol and meth user, right? And going to jail and all that stuff. And I would just tell people, oh, it's just bad luck right now. You know, I don't have a problem. I can stop any day. Right. You know what I mean? And then one more time I'm in jail going, oh, here I go again, right? Another bad luck moment, blah, blah, blah. But you're right. That denial piece is what we tell ourselves. Like, I don't have a problem. You have a problem. So I don't know what you have to do, but I'm good. When I'm sitting there at 130 pounds, 135 pounds, thinking I look good, but I'm telling, no, you have a problem. I look good. You know what I mean? And people are just right. going, family members are just going, oh, wow, there's something wrong yeah. with my son. You know, my mom's going, there's something wrong with my son. Um, and now we get to work in addiction where we sit across from guys like me and you that are going, I don't have a problem. You guys got all this wrong. Right. Yeah. And you're like, dude, I, okay. You're right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I do. I go, really? Okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and you and I've been doing this a while. I've been doing this for a long time and I've heard it all, you know what I mean? And, and I'm sure you have too. And where you just sometimes, I mean, you have to stop yourself from laughing, right? Because you, because what it is really is you're going, wow, I just saw myself again back then. And now I got to laugh at it, but I can't because this is my client and I got to support them. And, you know, you know, later on I do with them, I point out like, remember what you said? And they'll go, wow, that was me. And I go, yeah, that was you. Um, and I, and I think that's an important part of what we do, man. Like, like we have to remember, because listen, working with people with substance use disorders and mental health crises, is, it's not easy. No. There's days that are frustrating. You know, I got a buddy at work, his name's Daniel. And, and whenever we, you know, kind of vent to each other and talk about clients and some of the knuckleheadness and some of the denial stuff and some of the powerlessness stuff and unmanageability stuff, we always end it with, but we were never like that, Right. As, as kind of a sarcastic joke, because yeah. we were totally like that. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, I totally and do. So, I've had those conversations. So it's a good way to remind us that, you know what I mean? Look, man, don't judge them. You did that too, you know? Yeah. And that, I think I, that's, 
that's kind of how, not kind of, that's how we relate to them, right? Because we do catch ourselves and we go, look, this was me. You're, you're telling my story back then. Here's how I got over this, or here's what I did. You know, here's what I was taught. And then you start sharing with them feelings that are going through before they even say them to you. Right. And they're like, wow, this guy gets it. Right. He, yeah. he maybe he's right. You know what I mean? Or you tell him, you know, give him a little bit of, of stories of your, of your past addiction. And they go, man, this guy's been there. I can't bullshit this guy. Cause he's been there, done that. Right. And then that gets yeah. him to think, okay, I'm going to listen to what they're telling me now. It's a process. And you and I know it could be a long process where you have those days. I know you had them where you just, you're at your desk going, Oh my God, they're not kidding. It. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> And you want to just go, but, but that's part of the process, right? That's what was done with us. I know there were some pretty patient people with me that just want to probably slap me upside the head and go, Matt, stop, just stop now, please. But continue. At the end end of the, at the end of the day, hopefully, you know, so yeah, I'll get kind of back to, back to my story and point this out as I go. Uh, The point of planting seeds with some of those people that are just in the denial phase. Right. But so basically, um, you know, I struggled with that. When my dad passed away, my addiction, you know, took off. Um, my brother at the time struggled with alcoholism, got out of the hospital. I'm living back in Utah at this time. And we all kind of got together because he was going through a, a tough time. And, and um, we we're excited that he completed, you know, the inpatient portion of the stay at the hospital. And, but somehow, man, us Millers, we must be super manipulative. He, he convinces the doctor when he's leaving. This is a detox doctor, I remind you. Um, that he has gout in his, in his feet. And he basically gets him to write a prescription of Percocets. So he, he comes home with, with these, this prescription of, of Percocets. And, um, basically the first night he's home takes more than what he's supposed to. And also for those of you that don't know, when you get detox off of alcohol, typically they give you benzodiazepines to help the withdrawals. So he had been pumped full of benzodiazepines and, and then he gets this, you know, prescription for, for Percocets. And what ends up happening when you mix the two is you stop breathing. Uh, and so basically he took too many. I can remember getting woke up um, early in the morning, my brother was sleeping on the couch, mom screaming and uh, basically going out into the front room and, and see my brother there laying on the couch, no longer breathing. Um, checked for a pulse, uh, pulled him onto the floor, started kind of going through the, the CPR stuff. And, and I would say that was really my first experience, um, with something very traumatic, very traumatizing. Um, you know, my losing my brother and being there when, when, uh, the paramedics get there and, and say like, Hey, he's, he's no longer, he's no longer there, man. Uh, that was super hard for me. And, um, at the time I actually was, was trying to, to get clean myself and, um, started going to some fellowship stuff, started, um, basically networking to find places. I was more in, I'd moved out of the, uh, denial stage and, and was more into getting ready. I'd accepted that I needed some help. And, um, that just threw me for a loop. You know, when my brother passed away, I went from, open to seeking out help and seeking out treatment to just going even harder. Um, so again, introduce already have substance abuse, introduce some kind of trauma. And that really just magnified my substance use because now I have these, 
you know what I mean? These memories. Um, and for those of you that don't know, I, I, I have OCD. Like I'm, I've been, I've been diagnosed OCD even post treatment because check it out. When you get a lot of your diagnoses, when you're on substance abuse, they're not true diagnoses because you can't truly diagnose somebody while they're in active addiction or even truly uh, early recovery, because a lot of it is crossover from, right. It's what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, the substance use disorder or these other secondary mental health disorders. So, so anyways, um, I played that tape of my brother, basically pulled my brother on the floor doing CPR and that, that trauma, again, kind of like the guilt from not staying with my dad, that, yeah, that, uh, that trauma of doing CPR on my brother really shook me. And again, instead of going and getting help, which I hope if there's any takeaway from this, it's this, if you're struggling with something, go get help. Like, don't just self-medicate. That's how things get 10 times worse. You know, I compare it to like a loan max, right? Like if I go and I take out a loan to get temporary relief, well, guess what all those payday companies do? Yeah. They hound. They make money on the interest. They make right. money on the interest. Right. And so it's the same thing. If I go out and I self-medicate, I'm taking out a temporary loan for a problem that's not going to go away. And now I've compounded the problem because not only now am I going to have to pay back what I borrowed, but I'm going to pay back even more right? Because the interest is going to accrue. So, so yeah, that, that kind of moved into that. The first time I ever realized, like when I moved out of the denial phase, you know, when I moved from pre-contemplation to contemplation, um, if, if we're talking the five stages of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance. So before it sounded like, I don't have a problem. You have, you, you tell me I have a problem. It's my problem. That's pre-contemplation. Contemplation for me happened when we, my family went, um, they went to, I think it was Strawberry Reservoir or somewhere to camp and hang out by the lake. And I had just enough pills. I had bought just enough because this time my doctor's like, dude, I'm cutting you off. Like you, this yeah. post-surgery has been forever ago. You know, <laughs> I'd call him and hey, man, my dog ate my pills. Or, hey, I accidentally was brushing my teeth and they fell down the drain. I knocked them and the bottles open. They fell down the drain. All these, you know what I mean? Just crazy stories. So, so at this time I'm starting, I haven't touched heroin yet, but I've started buying pills from other people. And uh, so I go on this camping trip and I'm like, okay, I have just enough that if I space them out, I'll be okay. Well, guess what? I'm an addict. I don't know what moderation is. <laughs> right. So I blow through them. And then I end up telling my family, Hey, I have to go back home and do something. I got to, and they're like, no, we'll take care of that. You know, when we get back and I'm like, uh, uh, right. And so I oh. literally, I think like I picked a fight with my little brother. I found something super petty to get mad about and pick a fight with my little brother, ruined the whole trip for everybody, just so I had an excuse to leave to go buy more opiates. And that I remember once I got well, once I was no longer sick, I remember thinking to myself like, okay, multiple people are telling me that I have a problem. I probably have a problem, right? And so I was ready to get help. And, and then when my brother passed away, when, when my brother died from an accidental overdose, it went from the acceptance of, I have a problem and I need help to just cope, cope, cope. Right. right. Mm -hmm. I get that. So, yeah, exactly. Some people don't realize that when you're in your addiction, it's not about getting high anymore. It's just about not feeling sick, right? Whether, whatever, if it's alcohol, opiates, meth, whatever the case may be right now, we're getting high because we want we don't want to cope with that getting sick feeling, you know, and I wasn't an opiate user. I tried it, didn't like it, but I saw, you know, in our field, we see many people that go through that detox, man. And you're just like, how's that working for you? You know what I mean? That's part of the smart asset I get to do is like, how's that working for you? Especially if they come back. Right. But like you said, you're a denial, right? The denial happens. 
I believe it's, you know what I mean? Like that pain is so great. Like we don't want to, but you just, here's what I want the audience to take away from what you just said too, though. You finally realized it was okay to ask for help and go get past that denial, right? Because you got, like you said, you're a football player, you're a big dude. I met you, right? I played sports, you know, I wrestled, played football. Right. We, and, and, and my, well, my parents' generation, right? They're that old fashioned. You don't talk, especially the men. You don't complain. You get up, you do your work, you bust your ass and you don't tell people that you're sad, depressed or any, you know what I mean? That was that old generation that I grew up in. And the same thing, like to admit I have some kind of problem was like, you know, no, we're not supposed to talk about that. Right. So what I want the audience to know from what you just said, and, and the things I've learned, right, as men, it's okay to ask for help. Actually, that is a sign of strength, not a weakness to say, hey, look, man, I'm waving the white flag because I can't do this on my own. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Because yeah, I literally can remember, I literally can remember my dad, which look, I'm not putting this on him. It's not poor Jared. I had a bad dad. I had an incredible dad. He was just, he just taught this way and he's a military guy. He's a tough guy. So I literally can remember some of my dad's favorite sayings were uh, rub some dirt on it. Don't tell me about the waves. Just bring in the boat. Uh, Is it going to beat you or are you going to beat it? I don't want to hear excuses. Just elbow, uh, knees, knees and elbows, get the job done. In other words, just grind through it, you know? Um, Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the way. So you're right. Like, and and it wasn't because he was, you know, mean or, or cruel or anything. That's just kind of this, that was the way he was raised. That's what he learned being in the military. And he was just doing the best he knew how to do, man. Yeah, exactly. And that's my mom, bro. Like she played mom and the dad role and she was tough. You know what I mean? Like I learned from the best, you know, how to be tough. And so I was about 13 years old, right in front of the house with my couple of my friends and my mom comes out and in my head for some dumb reason, I'm going to go watch. I'm going to show my friends who's boss here. Right. Mm -hmm. So I do something stupid and I'm I'm a smart ass to my mom. Like, you know what I mean? The next thing I know, she's got one hand, my ear in one hand, whipping my ass and looking at my friends going, who's next? And and they're running (laughs) down the street like, sorry, Max, you're on your own, right? And I learned, okay, you know, they're like, peace out, Max. And I learned I'd never do that again. Even in my older age, man, I never talked back to my mom after that, right? But um, yeah. but yeah, that's that's the thing. I would watch, you know, as I look back in my childhood, dude, my mom always gave us what we needed, clothes, you know, cool clothes, shoes, food in our bellies, a roof over our head. And not once did I ever see her complain about it. And I watched her work her ass off, you know, to put us not in a park, but in a house and take care of me and my brother. And, and you know, um, but I come from seven, but they were all the five older ones were out of the house. But I watched my mom work her ass off. And it's like your dad. Same thing in her way was like, I don't want to hear excuses. Work hard. If you want something, go work for it because I'm not giving it to you. And uh, mm-hmm. kind of a lot, that's where I learned like, okay, I don't ask for help. I just do it. Right. So right. like you and my addiction, man, like I said, I, you know, it got so bad where you know, I wouldn't even look in the mirror at the end. You know, that's how much of denial I was in. Like any yeah. brushing of the teeth or shaving, not that I have a lot, you know, like you, I don't have, I can't get a beard, but you know, I got this. <laughs> I would, I would do it in the shower because that's how bad it got. Like, I didn't want to see myself in the mirror and just be disgusted by who I saw in that mirror. Right. But like you today, like we've done the work, we continue to do the work. And that's where I want you to touch on too, a little bit in a second is, you know, like when we get sober, like it's not okay. We do the work for 90 days in treatment or a year, and then we're cured. We're done. Right. For us, it's a lifelong journey of the things that we were taught that we have to implement daily so that we don't go backwards. Right. Absolutely. You know, so um, yeah, let the audience know about that work, right? Like, I I know there's not, 
and I always like to tell my audience, right? Because I don't have just addicts that come on here or alcoholics, but, but people will ask me and I said, well, there's no one size fits all, but Jared and I share the same uh, path to recovery, right? Which I'm a huge 12 stepper. I believe in them. They worked for me. I think they, I, they, I think they could believe, uh, work for even normal, normal people who need some help. Right. But, but share with the audience, like what that work looked like, you know, as you began to overcome that denial and go, okay, I do need help. You know? Yeah. I'm this big football player coach. You know what I mean? People look up to me, but here's, I need help. And what did that work look like? Yeah. So just to kind of wrap up my story, I, I, or the addiction piece, I I went through um, basically those hard times uh, went and got help. Right. And again, I was still, I went to a 30 day, uh, detox and inpatient at a hospital. And then, um, I ended up going through the divorce thing. And that's really when my addiction kicked from just pills, because once I've, you know, my wife asked me for a divorce and I realized I was going to lose everything that I'd, I'd built and worked my butt off for. I just really stopped caring. And so, but yeah, basically what it looked like for me was, uh, after being homeless for a period of time, mom kicked me out of the house, found out I was using heroin, kicked me out of the house after being homeless for a period of time, which I, I, when I work with family members, I always say just kicking them out is, is that can create more mental health problems, right? I'm about collaboration, not confrontation. But so anyways, uh, I experienced the majority of the trauma that I've gone through in life is from the, my nine months being homeless, seeing people get stabbed, shot, getting the crap beat out of me, having a blowtorch held to my, my calf to spit out you know, balloons of heroin that were in my mouth robbed basically. Um, anyways, uh, July 3rd of 2014, I, I'd had enough and I attempted to take my own life through a suicide and I was hit with Narcan three times. Thank God. And, uh, Salt Lake County PD gave me some cute little bracelets that you can't really separate your hands with. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, those beautiful uh, silver bracelets. You got them too. Yeah. I wanted the pink fuzzies, but I guess they were out. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, so, <laughs> right, right. No, no, that wasn't the, that wasn't, that wasn't what happened. So, so anyways, I, I was ordered to treatment. I got a, you know, a nudge from the judge and I got, at the time I was on felony probation, I had given a dirty UA in drug court. And that was another reason why I was run, on the run. And, uh, so I went in front of the judge just to show you how kind of hopeless I was for people out there that are feeling like, you know what I mean? Like they're hopeless, their life's hopeless and, and they can't come back from it. I tried taking my own life and then sitting in front of a judge, he's like, well, Mr. Miller, you just don't seem to want help. Like, you, you know, and I, he's, they could, they could send me to prison and I fully accepted. I was just going to go to prison. In fact, mm-hmm. I think I said like, Hey, send me to prison, you know? And he's like, Mr. Miller, you're just not, nothing's working, you know? And what am I going to, what, what, what do you think we should do with you? And I'm like, give me, give me, send me to prison. Give me jail time. I'll sit around, play cards and drink coffee. Cool. Send it. You know what I mean? And you don't say that to a judge. Right. Yes. I know what you're, you I, dude, I was in the same spot. I know exactly what you're talking about. And this poor judge is looking at me going, what is going on here? Like this guy's got an education. He, he, you know, he was a teacher at one time. Like I'm sure. So thank God, I, I, I thank God, my higher power, that maybe something spoke into his ear and he said, we're going to hold off on prison. We're going to send you to 365 days to the Davis County Jail, early release upon completion of, of a inpatient treatment program is called the MRC, Men's Recovery Center. So I did half of a year on that 365 days before I stepped a day into treatment. And that was huge for me. I mean, Max, you talk about what did it, what did it take for me? Number one, it took, I had to be humbled, right? And I had to have enough 
clear time, like enough time for my brain to be away from the abstinence to, for my, for my brain to be detoxified off that chemical long enough for my logical decision-making to start to kind of kick in. Right. And I'm, and I'm looking around me and I'm seeing, you know, in this treatment program, I'm starting to go through these steps and like everybody else, I, you know, Oh, Johnny's doing this and Joe's doing that and blah, blah, blah. And, and I had to have uh, my counselor tell me, you know, you're powerless over that. And I'm like, no, no, no I'm powerless over opiates. I, I can control what Johnny and Joe are doing though. You know what I mean? Right. And, and uh, you know, she pointed out you're powerless over people, places, and things, you know? So again, going back to me and you's modalities kind of being the same, I'll tell a quick little, a quick little story here. So um, I'm really good friends with the own one. Well, I, I'm buddies with one of the owners of steps and he goes and he meets with people all over Utah. And he was telling me about a guy that works at Cirque Lodge. And this guy takes on like TV, you know, actors, actresses, NFL players. Yeah. I heard of him. He, Cirque Lodge. Yeah. It's a super bougie place. Apparently if you got millions to throw around, you go to this place and he's like their top guy. So Ty is telling me about, he walks in and there's two NFL players that are currently playing in the league. Now he told the story just last week, actually. And um, two NFL players that are, you know, currently with teams right now. And he walks into this guy's office and the guy asks him to tell a story, he tells a story. And, and then Ty sits down and he's like, okay, guys, check it out. Here's the deal. I charge $1,500 an hour. And if you're not willing to do two things, I can't, I can't take you on as a client. And they're like, okay, you know, what's the two things? Get a sponsor, work the 12 steps. Here's this guy, $1,500 an hour, dude, right? Works at one of the bougiest places in the world. And, and you know what I mean? And it's like Ty was telling me, there's always going to be like this latest innovation, light treatment, you know, all this crazy stuff. But at the core... In 1935, AA was founded. Since 1935, it's been helping alcoholics and addicts for decades. It's going on 97 years now, right? Decades, dude. <laughs> yeah, like, it, and so at the at the core of it, every single one of those steps has a principle and has a takeaway that can help even people without substance use disorder, even people that have other struggles in life, depression, anxiety, like it's a big part of overcoming self-centeredness. And, and so anyways, that's, that's for me, I had to start working the steps. I remember my clinical director, when I was in treatment, he came to me and he said, and he, look, man, I was dubbed as like the golden child syndrome guy. You know what I mean? I, I literally had to wear a sign back then. They were big on shaming people in treatment. I don't know why, but I had to wear a sign that said, I'm a client, not a counselor because I would go <laughs> tell everybody else, you know right. what I mean? Like, so anyways, um, Derek, AKA the ice man, he was the clinical director of the MRC program. And he pulled me aside and he said, look, Jared, I can tell that you're motivated. I can tell you have internal motivation. I, you have an education. First of all, what are you doing here? Right? Like this isn't the life that was meant for you, which was huge for me, you know, kind of passive aggressively slapped me and gave me a compliment at the same time. Right. right. Like, which was big for me. Um, because it is the first time somebody gave me hope and, and self-worth and, and made me realize the person that I truly am, you know? Right. And so anyways, he said, don't miss a fellowship meeting in your first year, find a home group, get a sponsor. Don't miss your first, don't miss a fellowship meeting for an entire year. I don't care what happens come hell or high water every week. You're there. 
Yeah. I don't care if Joe looks at you cross-eyed. I don't care if Susie's spreading rumors about you. You get your butt to that meeting, get involved in some service work and give your, and here's, he didn't say, then you'll be cured. Right. He said, give yourself a real chance. Yeah. My, my, my mentors to, and sponsors told me. Today that I get that. Like you don't even have a fighting chance until you get 365 days clean. Exactly. And you don't even really give yourself a fighting chance until you go from step one to step 12. Like I've done the steps. I'm on my third go around with the steps. I'm, I'm currently today sitting in front of you on step nine. And I can tell you without going through that, those first 12 steps, dude, I, I probably wouldn't be sitting here clean seven years later. You know what I mean? Like the things, dude. the things I learned from that. And, and every time I go back through the steps and redo the steps, I learn new stuff. Dude, you don't have to tell me twice, right? I just turned 18 in <laughs> September and I've probably been through the steps at least 12 or 13 times in those 18 years, right? As a tune-up. And, and every time, like you said, I've always learned something new. Every time, right? I've had the same sponsor for 18 years and that guy never told me what to do, how to do it. He always gave me those strong suggestions or as I like to call them, he was my Yoda, right? He would do those Jedi mind tricks where like... He'd tell me to do something and I'd be like, I'm not going to do it. Then I'd find myself doing it and go, God, he got me again. Right. But that's how guys <laughs> like you and I get long-term recovery. We keep doing, we create that routine. Right. And that's what I wrote in my book. I wrote about my journey from addiction to recovery and how those 12 steps saved my life and how anybody can apply that in their lives. Right. Like I put them in a way where it's just like layman's terms. Like, here's what I did. This is what saved my butt. You know, even in recovery with, you know, when I lost my sister, my brother, my mother put my daughter in treatment, you know, all in the same year. Uh, and then as recently as like two years ago, losing a granddaughter and almost losing my son to a stroke due to his drug use and poor choices, right? Those principles saved me from going, for me, it was like those principles saved me from going, using sounds good right now, right? Instead, it was like, nope, right. I have a purpose still. I need to be here for my family. So I didn't even think about using, but you know, of course I went through a lot of grief and, you know, but they helped me get through it. And so audience, listen to what he is telling you, you know, like, like these principles work, right. And Jared will agree. That's not for everybody, but if you do anybody that works, these steps are going to go, wow, I feel better. Right. Excuse me. Right. Well, and here's the thing too, like try if for whatever reason, if the word God offends you or some of the stuff, look for the principle behind, like, in other words, demystify it. I love, uh, Russell Brand's book, um, what is it, Recovery, where he basically takes people through the steps without, he kind of demystifies the steps. So in other words, even if you don't want to do, even if you look at it and you're like, I'm offended and this isn't for me, the principles behind the steps are what's important. Powerlessness right. and unmanageability, right? A accepting that you, once you have some clean time, you can't go back out and, and socially drink. You can't go back out and socially, you know what I mean? If you go to the doctor, you got to tell yourself like, hey, doc. Check it out. I know I have a broken leg, but I'm going to need a, a non-narcotic pain medication because I'm, I'm an addict. I struggle with that. Like, Oh yeah. So, I had back surgery. I let know, my doctors know. Yeah. Step two, it's all about hope, right? Came to believe that power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Well, what's the opposite of it, of sanity, insanity. When I was doing the same thing over and over and over again, every day, waking up going, this is going to be the last time. This is going to be the last time I pick up. This is going to be the last time I use that's insanity. I'm doing the same thing, thinking that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and all of a sudden the, the mental obsession is going to be gone. That it doesn't happen. Right. right. Or I can but, use, I can control it this time, or it's going to be different. <laughs> that's right. the lie we tell ourselves. You're, you're, right. 
Yeah, you're, and so it's about hope. You know, oftentimes when I work with somebody and they struggle with step two because it's it you know has the word God in there, um, I say, okay, let's let's ignore that. Do you think you're the only person that has ever had this problem? Well, no, of course not. Okay, okay. Do you know of people that have had the same problem as you and have been able to overcome it or put it in remission? Right. Right. Yeah, sure. I know Johnny, Joe, Susie, you know, okay. Okay. Great. Is it possible that that could happen for you? That's, that's two, that's two. It's that simple. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so, so anyways, I won't take you through all 12 of them, but what I'm saying is the principles behind it are what's important. You know what I mean? I, I do. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more. Right. And, and that's why I do this podcast. So it gives people different avenues to take if they're struggling with whatever in life, right? Because there's different addictions. We, we know that, right? It's not just drug or alcohol, but there's sex addiction, there's a gambling addiction, there's <laughs> overeating. And those oh, principles yeah. can help us with any of that stuff, right? Um, but the what I wanted the audience to get just to see how you went from hopeless, right? Mm. Attempting suicide to this gentleman today that is out there helping others. That's a big smile on his face. He, he has zest for life, right? And, and you just got to show him that so far in this podcast, right? How you went. And like, he showed me pictures of what he would look like back then. And I was like, wow. Like, and I showed him pictures of my, you know, that picture of my book. Like, and we thought we looked good back then. Like, ah, oh, we look good, man. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, Here's what I'd like to ask now. Here's a couple of questions I'd like to ask my guests, right? So my book is called Fearless Happiness. So I always ask my guests, what does fearless look like for you? And how does that show up in your life today? Just real quick, I want to touch on something that you that you just brought up right there. Absolutely. You know, I've talked about all the darkness and kind of working the, the steps and, and staying close to recovery has really helped pull me out. So where am I today? Seven years later, I've gone through, you know, the homelessness, the divorce, um, had to work jobs that were like temp jobs because nobody would hire me because I was a felon. Uh, I many times been had to rent rooms because I couldn't even get my own apartment because of my record, right? Went from that, for some of you, that might be your reality. Seven years later, I'm remarried to somebody who is absolutely phenomenal, amazing, amazing woman. I am, I'm sitting today in, in my home in, in St. George, uh, close to a half a million dollar home, not too shabby for this guy. Um, you know what I mean? Like I have a career that I'm passionate about. I, I have a community of people, you know, I, I also do a podcast and radio show and, and, you know, I'm very involved in, in the treatment industry and recovery. Uh, here we have a thing called USARA, all pathways to recovery. In other words, we don't care if you're AA, NA, CA, C, whatever, right. whatever it is. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and, and the, but the biggest thing is like you said, Max, today I can wake up and like look in the mirror and I'm, and I'm proud of the person that I am today. I'm happy with the person that I am today. You know, you take away all that other stuff, right? This, the house, the podcast, the radio show, the look, as long as I'm still married, as long as I still got my dog and as long as I'm still able to help other people and feel like I have some kind of, it really goes back to those three things I talked about earlier that I had, you know, when I was first introduced to opiates, love. I have love in my life today, man. You know what I mean? I have acceptance. In other words, I have a community of people that know my background, know the things that have happened to me and accept me and love me anyways. Yeah. And the third one is purpose. As long as I have love, acceptance and purpose in my life, I don't care what, like, that's the miracle. That's the miracle. I went from trying to take my own life to 
have to getting back to some form of sense of self. Does that make yeah. sense? Absolutely. So what is, so hit me with the question again, Max, I apologize. No, that was perfect. Cause that's what exactly what I like the audience to hear is that stuff at the end. You know what I mean? Like here we were here I am today. Right. So my question is what I ask these two questions every time towards at the end of the podcast is what does fearless look like for you? And how does that show up in your life? Fearless looks fearless looks to me like vulnerability. Vulner, be, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. You know, the reason why I never really went and got help is because I was afraid it, it was pride and pride basically boils down to what I think you think about me. Okay. So, so being vulnerable, not caring about what other people think about you, you know what I mean? Um, putting yourself out there. Like if you feel like you're going through something right now, if you're struggling with something, be fearless, be vulnerable, go try to get help. If you're, if your heart's burning, if you're in early recovery, if you're, you know, oftentimes we say, what, what would you say to somebody still struggling? Well, guess what? The thing that I, I really want to motivate the people that are doing the deal, but running out of motivation, running out of passion, running out of desire. So if your heart's on fire for recovery, be vulnerable. You know, Drew Hicks every day or every week, he's jumping on talking about some principle in recovery. You know, you do a podcast, you wrote a book. I do a podcast. I do a radio show. Like, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Put yourself out there. You know what I mean? We can only keep what we've get what we've received by giving it away. So, so fearless to me means you're going to get some people that are going to laugh at you. You're going to get some people that are going to look at you and be like, yeah, that's not normal. But guess what? If I'm trying to please everybody else on the planet, you know how many people, there's like 3 billion people on the planet. Am I going to have to be three billion different Jareds to try to make everybody else happy? No, I'd rather just be one. I'd rather just be me, right? And so by being vulnerable and being true to myself and those people that love it are going to be attracted to it, those people that hate it, that's fine too, right? But be vulnerable. Absolutely. And I I couldn't agree with you more. And that's one thing I teach the guys that I sponsor or the clients I work with whether it's male or female, I tell them the first thing you need to do if you want to uh, help yourself is be vulnerable, right? Don't be afraid to go, I need help. I, I don't understand this or I need help in this area because I just don't get it, right? Or what am I doing wrong? That was the best thing that my, my mentors could have ever taught me was be vulnerable, right? Yeah, man. <laughs> Here's the thing too, uh, I'd say that like, so we can talk about people in recovery or treatment, whatever. Every Monday we do a process group, right? Every Monday we do a process group because everybody's had the weekend and, you know, Joe's looked at John sideways and Susie didn't do the dishes and so on and so forth, right? These are all hypothetical <laughs> names because I'm not saying people's real names, but, but the mill you write gets, gets crazy. It starts getting a little sideways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So every Monday we do, a, every Monday we do a process group, to talk about what's happened over the weekend, what's happened in the house, check in with everybody. You know, and you have that, you have, oh, so-and-so is not doing this or so-and-so is not doing that or so-and-so didn't. And then, and then every once in a while, somebody will go, you know, I'm really struggling with, with the, the fact that I was raped when I was a child and boom, it goes dead silent because right. it's, and as a counselor, I sit back, like, wake me up when we got some real issues. You yeah. know what I mean? And then, <laughs> and then, and then somebody, somebody drops a bomb, like, Hey, you know what? I, I started EMDR and I'm really struggling because I have all these memories of, of child abuse or whatever right. it is, you know, mm-hmm. and then, they, and then they, and everybody gets quiet because they're vulnerable. 
and they're about to share some stuff that's really deep. And those are the people in my experience. Okay, Max, Mm -hmm. in my experience, those are the people that experience real change. The people that are not afraid to, to get vulnerable, the people that are not afraid to come on Max's podcast and, and cry when he talks about losing his dad. Like the people that can Absolutely. get real are the people that, that I see truly change. Yep. And that's with anything in life, right? Like I get that. I've been in those situations just like you, right? Where I'm just like, okay, here we go. This is a bunch of BS. All they're doing is bitching and whining, right? And then someone <laughs> drops a bomb like that and you go... That's when you look around the room and they're looking at you like, and they see it like, you need to be quiet right now because this person's about to, you know what I mean? Um, and usually it's like a domino thing. It takes one, one person gets vulnerable and then somebody else who's, who's not, again, who's struggling with pride. What I think you'll think about me because this person allowed themselves to get vulnerable and get real. All of a sudden you have other people that start opening up and it's like, okay, now this is beautiful. Now this is therapeutic. Right? Yep. Absolutely. So be that person. That's that's what I was getting at. Be fearless. Be right. that leader. Be the person that's not afraid to 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 put their feelings out there on the table. Do some healing, man. Yep, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. That was a great definition, man. That's kind of how I roll. You know what I mean? Even with 18 years, like I still, when I take a chip now or a token, wherever you call it, I cry, right? Because But there's the tears of gratitude, right? Because I'm not afraid to show you that I can cry because of where I'm at today and what I've went through and all that stuff. And like you said, with God's help, I'm here on this this podcast with you, right? So another question I like to ask is happiness, right? What is happiness? And if you look, I put a Y in the happiness for a reason. And uh, so I like to ask my guests, knowing that that Y is there, what does happiness look like for you? And how does that show up in your life on a daily basis? So yeah, I love the Y because happiness to me is, is being mindful about like the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity the strength to accept the things I cannot change. Right. Like if, if things are happening, people, places, and things that I'm powerless over giving it up and giving it to God, right. Turning it over step three. Like, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know. I, I don't know God. How did the lilies grow in the wild? Right. We don't know, but, but really just understanding what I have control over, what I don't have control over, and, and basically being able to justify that in my life. Because if I'm constantly worried, if I'm future tripping or I'm sad about the past, then I'm not truly in the moment. And being in the moment, again, it boils back to the serenity prayer. God grant me the ability. Sorry, I'm, I'm worked up here. I have OCD. So when there's different stuff going on, it throws me off. No, God I, grant I, me the serenity to set the things I cannot change, the willingness to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Right. So... That's one of my staple prayers, brother. I get it. Yeah. What can I control? What can I control? And if I feel like I'm not quite sure, seeking out somebody, a sponsor, mentor, whatever, counselor, who can help me wade through that. Because if 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 I just stay in my lane and I just control the things that I truly can control, which is the way I react to things, then I'm happy because I'm in control of my emotions. Was that anywhere close to what you're getting at? (laughs) <laughs> that well, you know what? And there's no right or wrong answer to that, right? Everybody's has their right. What you said, like so that ultimately, what I hear from you is that leads to joy, right? Because you're doing the things right, that just don't make you happy, right? Because if you want to 
get deeper than that, right? Happiness is fleeting sometimes, right? I could be happy one minute, you know what I mean? Stub my toe. And then all of a sudden, like the world sucks. Ah, I'm in pain, right? But what I got by that was like the inner work that we do on ourselves. And then what we do is to help other people. That's where joy starts to kick in, right? And joy is lasting. When we're in joy, right? Like that's why we stay. For me, my personal opinion is when I'm in joy, I stay clean and sober. And I've done it for a long time and you've done it for a long time, right? So there's that work that you've done to help you get to that place of happiness, which then in turns into joy, right? Absolutely. Anytime I can answer that by basically reverse engineering it. So when I start to feel unhappy, the thing that pulls me out of feeling unhappy is gratitude and Ah, and doing for others. (laughs) That's exactly it. But maybe people say that sounds, you know, cliche or cheesy or whatever, but it's true. Like when I'm discontent, when I'm experiencing discontent, when I'm experiencing unhappiness, I, if I can just slow down and go, okay, but what can I be grateful for? What, you know what I mean? Sure. I want this and that and, and all these things, but I can never have those things if I'm not grateful and happy with the life I have right now. Absolutely. And you said, I couldn't have said it even, that's spot on, right? Because even through our difficult times and we think back about what we went through, I know for me, when I'm grateful, even for the struggles, Mm -hmm. it's hard not to be happy, right? Because I, one, I can't change the past, but I'm grateful for how, you know, in my case, in your case, God got us through that, right? And now, now we're there for our families, right? Like you and I are like, I, I have a wonderful wife, beautiful wife, you know, that just is my partner in life. We look out the same window of life and like, it's hard for me to get very negative at all, at all. Right. Sometimes, right. I'm human, but like you said, I've been doing a gratitude journal for 18 years, right? Three things in the morning when I wake up and three things before I go to bed. So I'm constantly putting stuff in my brain so that I don't get into a depressive state or angry, or I hate the world. You all suck, you know, Jared, you know, right. came on my podcast and I'm pissed off kind of, you know, how you, you know, those people, right? right? Nothing makes them happy. Oh, yeah. Right. So that was perfect, man. And, um, you know, I think the audience is going to get a lot out of this, this interview. And, you know, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and, and sharing and getting vulnerable and, and showing people that change can happen. Right. We just have to, right. One day, you know, the biggest thing I've gotten from most of my guests is when they surrendered and they knew that they couldn't do right. it on their own. And they got vulnerable. They asked for help. And now all the guests I've, I've had on my freaking podcast, excuse me, is they're all successful, right? Because they do the work. They're, they're like you said, there's this guy I, I saw on a TED Talks, right? He's a recovering addict. He's very successful, made a ton of money in some type of health thing with the health industry. But he always talks about the three things he was taught by a sponsor. So the, the TED Talks, and you should go check it out and show your clients. It's really cool. It's called Great Leaders Do What Addicts Do. Mm, I'll write that down. Yeah. And he talks about at the end, he goes, this is what I do. I've done it since day one and I do it now in long-term recovery and in my business and in my personal life, it's always be authentic, right? Always be honest, surrender the results and do the hard work always, right? Those are three principles. I started three principles he lives by, right? That you and I live by. We may call it different, but that's kind of what we do. That's why we stay clean and sober, right? So I appreciate you coming on the, on the podcast. What was the last one? I'm I'm writing this down. What was the last one? Oh, surrender the results. Whenever people share little nuggets of wisdom with me, man, every, you know, even w- way back in treatment, I, I treat it like gold, man. So I, I want to make sure I wrote that down. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. I appreciate that, man. You're awesome, bro. Hopefully Thank we you. Get you on my podcast. 
Oh yeah, we're gonna make it happen. Sunny St. George. (laughs) Yep, definitely. I would love to. I've talked to my wife about it. I think it's gonna happen. Um, But tell the audience. uh, uh, Here's what I like to end with: like, tell the audience, like, if they want to reach you to work with you, or or they need help, how can they get a hold of you? So uh, my my personal profile is on like social media, Jared Roy Miller. Uh, I'm I favor more Facebook than anything. Here's the bad thing about today, right? Is I refuse to be addicted to my phone and we have a thousand different apps. And, and so <laughs> right. if you want to find me, go to Facebook. Uh, Jared Roy Miller's got a picture of me and my wife on our wedding day up at the lake. Uh, you also can reach out um, through the podcast and radio show that I do. It's uh, We Do Recover with Jared Miller. We Do Recover is my favorite piece of literature um, from a program that I work. And then that platform name was already taken. So I just put with Jared Miller. Uh, so, you know, we could get the platform and, and right. do it. So, but yeah, definitely reach out. Uh, I'd love to hear from people. Uh, even I, man, even people that, uh, that send me, you know, oppositional stuff. Like if you disagree with some of the stuff I, I say, that's fine. Go ahead. Send me a message. Let me know how you think. I, I love hearing, I love hearing from people, man. It's fine. Oh, yeah. So awesome. Any last thoughts for our audience today, Jared? You know, Max, I just want to point out that, dude, you're a stud, like, and this is a big part of recovery. Like, just the connection, man. Thank you so much for letting me come on here. Let me share my story. You know, oftentimes people have this, like, limited resource mentality. Like, we're all competing to be the most popular, and and I'll want to do this with people. I want to network with people, and 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 they just shut me out. And, and so I, my heart's full of gratitude for you. Because like, it's about reaching people. It's about in, in, inspiring people. It's about, you know, a message of hope. And, and so thank you for being authentic to what this thing's truly about and, and allowing me to come on, man. Oh, my pleasure, bro. I, I appreciate you coming on and taking the time on a, on a Sunday. Um, awesome, awesome interview. So thank you so much, my friend. I'm glad we connected, right? What do they say? The opposite of addiction is connection. And, and we hit it off on day one. So I appreciate you taking the time and uh, coming on and, and being a guest. So yeah, definitely. Maybe there'll be a next time. Well, I know there'll be a next time, but I'm going to be on your podcast next time. So I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you. Hey, tell your, tell your amazing wife hello for me. All right.